And now we come to the nub of why we're here. We're here to hear God's word. And we continue our series on Galatians. And uh, this week we are reading from Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. And this is entitled, Children of God. So let's read God's word. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as there is an heir, an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we are underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Nick, please come and share the Lord's word with us. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. I think the important bit of that this morning is going to be those verses right at the end of our reading. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you. And air. This is just one of those passages that's packed with more spiritual truth than you can really absorb in any one given morning. Um, but we're going to give it a go. <clears throat> I shall just flip my uh, laptop around. There we go. But I suggest we pause and just maybe read those verses over a couple of times to yourself. And we'll reflect on them further at the end. But just for a moment, just remember that we sit here as as children of God and God has sent the spirit of his son, Jesus, into our hearts. So we call call out Abba, Father. And let's just just call out to the Father for a moment. Either quietly or out loud and just say, Abba, Father, speak to us this morning. Move our hearts, change us, grow us. So let's just do that in the quiet for a moment or two. Father God, we ask you to speak to us this morning. Speak about what you've done in Christ. Speak through the Holy Spirit you've sent to our hearts. 
to grow us and encourage us to fire us up. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're in Galatians. Oh, excuse me. This is going to happen all the way through, but anyway, I'll just cough. Um, Getting the gospel right. Now, Hollywood loves the idea of of the body swap movie. I don't know whether you you remember any of them. Um, That's one from kind of my kind of era. That was vice versa. Judge Reinhold, Fred Savage, who is kind of like that kind of quite um, famous child actor if you're of a certain age. Um, and uh, father and son um, accidentally um, swap, swap bodies and all kinds of funny chaos ensues. Um, so Hollywood loves that idea. Freaky Friday um, was another one uh, repeatedly uh, remade. And it's just a great comic device. But there is something attractive sometimes, kind of a, a thought that we'd quite like to return to our uh, youth, you know, especially when we get a bit old and creaky, but I want to ask you the question whether you would really want to um, return uh, to childhood. Would you really want to go back to, let's say, your, your 10-year-old self? Oh, dear. Um, <clears throat> that is my 10-year-old self. Well, actually, probably a little bit um, slightly younger than that. And what you will notice is I have an interesting outfit on. Um, it's, uh, it is the 70s. Um, so I'm wearing a polo neck shirt Navy polo neck shirt with a strangely striped sweater and purple trousers. Now, did I choose those? I doubt it. You don't get to make the choices when you're nine or ten. Maybe they do these days, but in the 70s you didn't. You wore what you were told. Okay? So the thing about your ten-year-old self is, you, is you, you're under authority. You get told what to do and, and, and you do it. Do you really, you know... Do you really want to go back to short trousers? And if I, I'm, I know what my answer is, and that's no. But this really is the question that, that, that Paul's asking, uh, asking the Galatians. You're now adult children of God in Christ. Do you really want to go back to school uniform and kindergarten-style rules? And he wants to show them, look what you have in Christ. And then this kind of amazing uh, passage, which we're only really going to scrape the the surface of. Um, Just to remind you, sermon notes and uh, stuff are are on the sides and at the front and the back if you need them. So let's have a little look um, at at what we are in Christ. Paul starts with, in Christ Jesus, you are all um, children of God through faith. So you become a Christian um, by, by taking a step of faith in the promise of God. That was the, um, the, the promise made to Abraham. You remember the, what, the, what God said to Abraham? I will be your God, you will be my people. It's a promise. And you become a Christian by trusting that. It's a promise that's made possible through Christ. We saw that a week or two ago. Christ who died once for all the righteous, for the unrighteous to, um, to bring you to God. So to become a Christian is just to take hold of the promise by faith. But when you did that, a kind of legal transaction um, takes place in God's mind, and and you legally become uh, a son of God. And and notice this, that not just a child, okay, and although Paul says children of God, but not just a child, um, a son of God and an adult um, son of God at that. And that's important because in the society of the time, it was only sons who inherited. Only sons inherited from the parents. So 
ladies, women and men are, are sons of God in the sense that we both become um, legal heirs of God. Now, that might sit a little bit uncomfortably. I had a friend at, at, um, at Bible college. She was called Delith, and she was um, adamant that she was a son of God. And because that meant she legally inherited from God. Um, but don't worry, because Tim Keller says God is even-handed in his gender-specific metaphors. Okay, because, of course, men and women are the bride of Christ. Um, so it's going to sit uncomfortably with you one way or the other. But we are legal, we are legal sons, and, of course, uh, men and women both are the bride of Christ. What an amazing thing that God should be prepared um, to sign a, adoption papers on you. And he says, you're children of God because all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves um, with Christ. See, in Roman society, when, it, when a youth or a young man um, came of age, he was given his special toga. He was given his, um, he was given his adult toga. It's called a toga virilis. It was kind of an all-white toga. Um, and then he was enrolled in the... In the um, as a citizen, and then his name would come up on the census, and then, of course, that meant probably almost go straight away into military service. And maybe this is in Paul's mind, that when he became a Christian, in a sense, you, you came of age. You've been legally adopted by God the Father. You've put on the toga virilis. Um, you have been clothed um, with Christ. So that's happened in a spiritual sense. And when you become a Christian, you're baptized into Christ and you receive the Holy Spirit. So you've put him on in that sense. And then, of course, you put him on him in another sense, because when you are baptized literally, physically in water, um, you're baptized as a public ceremony. And in a sense, you acknowledge your coming of age, um, that you have um, clothed yourselves with, with Christ. And it's one of Paul's, um, Paul's favorite pictures, really. Um, this idea of clothing yourself with Christ. But, but notice he, he uses it in slightly different ways in, um, in different letters. He's not asking you here to do something. He is telling you something that has already been done um, when you accepted Christ. You have your filthy rags being thrown away and you've, you've put on Jesus. And Jesus, what does he do? What he... The clothes of Jesus, they cover our nakedness, cover our shame. God, if you think right back to the, the Garden of Eden, God is always in, the, always in the business of covering our nakedness. He's always in the business of covering the shame um, that we've brought upon ourselves by being rebellious to him. God has always been in that business from the, from the fig leaf uh, until now on. But, but Christ, because of what he's done, he covers our shame when we're put on. Yes, legally, he's, we're, we're clean. But in terms of our relationship with God, Christ covers our shame, our embarrassment, that we would otherwise have to feel standing, standing before a holy God. He's, in a sense, kind of our, our, our uniform, uh, in the sense that when we put on Christ, he is our identity. Our first identity is to say we are Christ's, uh, and I'm dressed uh, in Christ. And, of course, that has a... An implication that you should stand up and wear it proudly um, wherever you go. Or maybe you want to think about that as you walk through the week, that you're, that you're clothed with Christ. Whatever happens, God has covered your shame. Whatever happens, you're, you're wearing Christ. And that might have an implication how, how you think about different um, uh, circumstances. 
But of course, your clothes are kind of the one thing, aren't they, that you carry with you all, all the time. Small moments accepted, okay. But most of the time, your clothes are the closest thing to your body. Having closed yourself with Christ, he is with you all the time. There's nothing closer. And this starts to kind of build up a picture of a relationship with Christ. Uh, Tim Keller says it goes far beyond keeping rules and regulations. This goes uh, way beyond simple obedience. This is to be in love with him, bathed in him, and awash with him. So we're children of God because we're clothed in Christ. But I don't know whether you noticed across those verses, Paul uses the word um, all twice. You're all children of God in Christ. You are all baptized into Christ. And that means that there is a radical equality and unity about Christians. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are, you are all one in Christ Jesus. We all have the same spiritual status uh, before the Father. And because we have the same spiritual status before the Father, we have, we have a unity in, in equality uh, between each other. There's a wonderful intimacy with God the Father through being a Christian. There's a wonderful closeness as Christians with one another, or there should be. And Paul says there's no Jew and Greek. There are no... There is an essential sameness of spiritual standing across race, across class, and across gender. That's not to say there are no distinctions or that um, all those distinctions have been erased. And I think we just need to take a moment to think about that. So one of the wonderful things about the church is is that we are united um, across culture and, uh, and nationality. The church is all around the world and it's in all kinds of different cultures and it's reached all kinds of people. And it's one of the glories of the church that when we get the little peak into heaven, uh, in Revelation there are people from every tribe and, and language and, and tongue and nation. And there was a quote which I couldn't find, and so I have to give you from memory, but the suggestion uh, by one writer that, um, that other religions are allied to cultures. So that Islam needs um, an Arabic culture. Hinduism really needs uh, an Asian culture. I think he went on to say that materialism needs a a Western culture, but but the Christian church is not allied to any particular race or culture. It it is universal. It is a wonderful and it is a a glorious thing. And so that means our, our unity in Christ, it precludes racism, doesn't it? We cannot be racist, and the church accepts people from all... Uh, all races, all nationalities, all, all cultures. But it doesn't erase cultural differences. Some people will, will like their English food. If you have Spanish people, they will like their Spanish customs and their Spanish food. There are still distinctions. It doesn't mean they're not Spanish people anymore. But it means that their identity uh, is first and off in Christ. So we're united across culture and nationality. We're united across class uh, and wealth, there is, no, there is no slave or free. So the gospel speaks to rich people, it speaks to poor people. Powerful and downtrodden alike. 
What it also does is it, is it speaks to the value uh, of all human beings, that all are, are equally valued by creation, all are equally um, valued um, in salvation. So in Paul's day, there would have been slave and free, and people would have stayed slave, or they would have stayed, uh, they would have potentially stayed free or, or stayed slaves. Paul says at one point, if you can gave, gain your freedom, great, but if you can't, so, so be it. But those slaves still had the same spiritual status. And so in the church, they, they were equal, which would have been such a radical thing at the time. Uh, they would have been equal to their masters. And a strange thing it must have been. But because the, the gospel uh, speaks to the equality of all people, it does ultimately undermine slavery. It undermines that idea that one person can own somebody else. But it doesn't erase the fact in the present day that some are employers and some are employees and all have responsibilities. If you're serving to serve as if you were serving Christ, if you're a, some kind of master to lead like one who is also under authority. And the church is united across uh, male and female. All are equal in, in spiritual stages. That, again, would have been a profoundly radical thing uh, in, in Paul's day to say that women are of the same status as, as men because they simply weren't in society. But women and men are of the same, uh, the same equal status. It doesn't erase the fact that some of us are men and some of us are women. We're not interchangeable. And we're not malleable, as society increasingly would want to suggest. Really, that is to go against the biblical account of creation. So men and women have different but equally important responsibilities in family and church. And I think men have been given a kind of servant leadership. Um, if you think of the model of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, men have been given a kind of servant leadership in family and home. Um, so I think men and women have different responsibilities in, uh, in home and in church, but that doesn't deny um, that they are equal, equal in spiritual status. So the church cannot accept sexism. And it's interesting that the gospel then creates this unity in two different ways. The good news of the gospel creates unity. We're all one in status. How could you look down on someone who's clothed with Christ? Why would I want to be jealous of anybody else if, if I'm closed with Christ? That's the good news. But the bad news creates unity as well. We all know that we're sinners, saved by grace like everybody else. And actually, Paul goes on. says, so, little summary. If we look upwards, we're, we're sons of the Creator. If we look, uh, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Your status is that you're, you're sons of God the Father, the Creator. If you look outwards, you're, you are one of the... Uh, the universal church of, of Jesus across the world. Um, but you can look back through history and see that we're heirs of that promise um, to, to Abraham. You, you're a beneficiary of the will, the promise that, that God made to Abraham. And so I guess when Abraham stood there and looked at the, looked at the stars, I guess one of them was you. Given all these things, that you're a child of God, you've clothed yourself with Christ, you're in this amazing united thing called the church, you're one of those stars that Abraham looked at. Why on earth is the implication from Paul, would you want to go back to childhood? Now that you're an adult son of God, why on earth would you want to go back to childhood? Childhood, which means going back to being 
trying to justify yourself by laws and rules and your own moral good works. So Paul wants to come back to that everyday example that he kind of started the other day. Uh, well, this example is, is coming of, a coming of age, which builds on that idea um, uh, of being under a, under a guardian or, or, a, or a tutor. You remember the pedagogue from a, uh, from a few days ago. So Paul, says, Paul puts it like this. Okay, imagine that you were heir to a huge country estate. Okay, that's Downton Abbey. Okay. Actually, presumably it's not really Downton Abbey, but I don't know what it really is. It's the, it's the house that was used as Downton Abbey. But imagine that, that you're the heir um, to Downton Abbey or, or wherever it might be. Um, one day, um, it, it's all going to be yours. But Paul says, until you actually come of age, um, you're like a slave. Because you have to do what your guardian says. Um, because you're under a particularly strict govern, a governess or governor. I don't know what the male equivalent is. Which is the, which is the law. Until you come of age... All that stuff is, is yours, but it's not yours. You can't do anything with it. And what does he mean by underage? I think it's, we've got to pick this apart a little bit. I think I'm somewhere in the wrong note on my... Hang on a second. Oh, yeah, there we go. What does Paul mean by underage? Well, clearly in the passage, he says the, the, the heir is, is subject to guardians and trustees until the sign set for his father. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. When we were under age. Well, he means a couple of things. It's clear. When did we come of age? We only came of age when Christ came. So to be, to be under age is that time it, either in history, um, before Christ came, so the Israelites, under the law, they were kind of underage. But Paul is speaking to, um, to G- Gentile Galatians. So clearly, in a sense, everybody without Christ is, is kind of underage. And so I think it applies to you and I as well, that before we knew Christ, we were underage. And if we're in the meantime, now that we are Christians, um, forgetting Christ, or forgetting what he's done for us, going back to trying to live Christian life by rules then we're trying to go back to being um, underage. <clears throat> and Paul says, when you're underage, when you're under the governess, you're just under, he calls them elemental spiritual forces. Or, or you'll notice um, a, a, an alternative translation in the NIV is under basic principles. It's one word uh, in, in the Greek, but it has a kind of, a, but it has a kind of range of, of meanings. And in Colossians, Paul says to not go back to these basic principles. And the basic principles, he say, they're expressed by things like do not touch, do not eat. So I think the, the basic principles, going back to the basic principles, is, is essentially trying to justify yourself by rules all over again. And Paul says trying to justify yourself by rules is a trap. It is, it is slavery, and it doesn't lead to freedom. And when you're trying to justify yourself, you always end up 
making a God out of something. Even actually if it's just yourself. If you're saying, well, actually, I can justify myself. I can do this myself. You'll make a God out of something. And if you make a God out of anything other than Christ, you're still under slavery and actually still under Satan. Ultimately, you're under a spiritual force which you didn't want to be under. So before we're of age, we're under the, the, garden, the, the father's guardians. And then, thankfully, then thankfully, uh, uh, when the set time had, had fully come, God sent his son, born a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So we were under the, uh, the guardians of the father, but then, in the fullness of time, the Son has come. Christ came at the right time. Could he have come earlier? Possibly. But there were no communications, really, until the Romans created roads and, uh, and Greek was the, was, the, was the language around the world. Could he have come earlier? Maybe we would say, surely, Lord, you could have come earlier and saved a lot more people earlier on, but he didn't. Maybe we would have said, couldn't you have come later? Couldn't you have come in the internet age? And then everybody would have known Christ instantaneously. But the Lord knows his own purposes. God, Christ, came at the right time, came at the fullness of time. And he came born of a woman. He came absolutely human, knowing everything, uh, having all the experiences that you and I would experience right down, to, uh, right down to birth. He came under the law. So he came under the same slave master that you and I are under. But of course... He fully obeyed the law in all its minutiae, in all its intentions. And in doing so, he pays the price to buy you out of slavery. You know that. So that we might be sons. And so now in the presence, in the present runner, You are legally God's sons. There's, that's a pile, apparently, of adoption papers. Uh, my brother and his wife are trying to adopt a, a child from, from China, um, despite being in, in, their, in their 50s. Um, and it's a whole process of jumping through hoops. I guess they have a file somewhere, you know, in the spare bedroom that, that looks somewhere like that. But it's not just a legal thing. You are legally God's son. God doesn't want to simply make a legal transaction and then leave you working out the rest of your life on your own. Not least because you can't. But God wants you to know that by experience. God wants you to have emotional, is that the right word? Or God wants you to know in the feeling part of you that you are an adult son of God. And so what does he say? He sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. The spirit who calls out, calls out, cries out, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave but God's child. Since you were a child, you're an heir. So this is not a bare legal transaction. It's not a signature simply on a, a piece of paper. It's 
God's sending of his Holy Spirit into you to change your experience. And so the bit that that, um, Kev read right at the beginning, the spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. When you're under the law, all there is really is, when you're trying to justify yourself, all there is really is fear of failure. There is no assurance. But, but Paul says God has sent the Holy Spirit. Um, so the Spirit testifies with our spirit that, we're, that we are God's children. Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. So we're inside in your spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is to tell you that you are a, a child of God. Yes, that's a thing of conviction, but it's a, but it's a, convic- it's a conviction with it. Emotional consequences, it, it, it can't be a, a, a bare mind thing. It, it, it has to be a, a hard thing. That God has sent his spirit into you to tell you, reassure you, uh, convince you, uh, convict you that you are a child of God, and that spirit in you calls out back to the Father out of that knowledge, Abba, Daddy, there isn't a really good translational word. Word, Papa. So we don't use that anymore. By that spirit. So interesting. The work of the sun is external. The work of the sun was on the cross. Kind of sorting out the payment, the adoption payments, wasn't it? The work of the spirit is internal. Bringing to your knowledge, bringing to your mind, bringing to your heart this, this truth, this fact. And that your status has changed and enabling you um, to make use of that change of statement. Status. So let me ask you, what is your experience? What is your experience? of the love of God. Let me tell you a couple of things. I can look back in my, in my Christian life and there were some ecstatic moments. I remember once praying, praying with a guy called Carl. He was an interesting character, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and, and just being kind of lifted up, you know, and just kind of in that sense that you're sort of in the, in the glow um, of the love of God. There have been those moments in, in, in Christian life of, of feeling wrapped in the arms of God and the love of God, and it's a wonderful thing. It's not wrong to pray that God will, will show his love to you. It's been a fair smattering of trouble, and you know God in trouble in a different way, I think. God reassures you of his presence, I think, in a, sp- in a specific way in, in, in times of trouble. I've lost a picture on this slide, but it doesn't matter. But mainly, and most preciously, God speaking in and, and through his word, rationally and, and pointedly, 
had a really interesting few months, had a really interesting week, um, where, you know, I'm, I'm having my quiet time, um, and what I find is if you consist, is, is I find from my experience, when I've been consistently um, in the word of God, God is consistently speaking to me. Um, strangely, not necessarily in the way you might expect. So yesterday I got as far, I'm reading the Psalms with Calvin, bizarrely. Um, it's just some stuff that came up in my readings. Um, <clears throat> but I was reading Psalm 16 and I got a verse 2 and it absolutely hit me between the eyes. Convicted me of, uh, of an attitude. Um, I heard God really clearly. And those are the precious times because uh, um, it, it's lovely to be wrapped in the arms of the love of God and it kind of encourages you. But when God kind of comes through his word uh, and I find God speaks, then that changes me and it changes my relationship with God and it changes the quality of my relationship with God, it changes the quality of my everyday experience. Um, so I don't think it's simply my personality that I value those moments when God comes. Um, and, and speaks through his word. And there's been a myriad of them over the last few months. It's God just kind of... I, I love the kind of surgical way God gets in and kind of... Well, I, I say love. It's kind of a love-hate thing, isn't it? When he deals with your sin and, and, and kind of comes and, and, and speaks. But it's been like that. It's just been peculiar, and it's been a peculiar week. Um, but let's just be, let's just be practical We've got some time. So I'm just going to read you something else. In the letter just, uh, just over the page, Paul prays for the Ephesians, and we were talking about this with the, um, the young people on Sunday night. Uh, and Paul says, I pray that, being rooted and established in love, you may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love, that surpasses knowledge, you may be filled uh, to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's, that's Paul's prayer. There are two really big prayers for the Ephesians. And one of them is that they will know uh, the love of God. They will know the love of God. Uh, they may have power to grasp it. So Paul says the Holy Spirit got to come in and do something in you which helps you to grasp uh, the, the expansiveness, the dimensions uh, of the love of Christ. And he says he wants you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. In other words, it goes, you know, it kind of it goes beyond any other kind of knowing. It's not a ra- it is a rational kind of knowing, but it's beyond the rational kind of knowing. It's not something you can simply look up in a textbook. It's a kind of knowledge that's um, knowing that surpasses knowledge. And because that then fills you to the measure of all the fullness of God, that's what increases your holiness ultimately, is when you know the love of Christ. A relationship with God has to be, has to be experienced. And what I want you to do is go away. I'll pray that while I don't go away. We'll stay, we'll stay here and pray that. Um, because Paul says that the Spirit is causing you to cry out, call out, 
Abba, Father. I want you to do that. If that seems appropriate, and I would think it's probably appropriate somewhere along the way this morning, it's what you say, Abba. Dad, just uh, want to. What, is, what, what, what do you want to call out to him about? I don't, I don't know. What's in your experience? It might, be, it might be a small thing in the present and just say, this is getting to me and I can't change it. Will you, my dad, will you, will you do this? Will you change this? It's a prayer thing, this calling out, obviously, isn't it? When you call out to Abba. But it's a prayer with, 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 with passion. Or it's a, it's, a, it's a crying out. It's quite a strong word. This, this calling out to Abba, to your, to your dad, means that you're trusting and expecting that he's there. So you, it means that when you call out, you, you, he's present. But when you call out, it's calling out with that assurance that he's your parent. So which is it going to be? Short pants, okay? Which is primarily about legalism, which is primarily about justifying yourself. Are you going to, carry, are you going to grind out the Christian life just doing the things you feel you ought to do because you feel you ought to do them? Or you're going to pull on the long trousers. Which means walking with your Father through the gracious work of the Son made real by the presence of the Holy Spirit and crying out to him, Abba, 